Joe's not getting admitted to the stream, just to let you know. He's late. He's not coming in. <laughs> hey, guys. Welcome to episode eight. And we got uh, Ian Devlin on. Um, this, today's show is uh, brought to you by HMH Fly Tying. HMH has been making fly tying vices, tying tools, tying uh Tying fly tying materials since 1975. I butchered that one. Located in Bitford, Maine, their products are not only made in the U.S., but all the vice parts are made in the state of Maine. All HMH products are hand assembled by a small team of not only fly tires, but registered Maine fishing guides. These guys know what works. All their products can be seen at tyingvices.com or ask your favorite fly tying shop to get HMH. Uh, our other sponsors also Midwest Bucktails. If you guys want to pick up some Bucktails, uh, running all weekend up until Sunday at 11.59. The promo code ends. Uh, at checkout, just enter at device 10 and you'll get your 10% off uh, for your Bucktails. Um, and since you're here, uh, I'm just going to ask you the basic question. Just kind of tell us about yourself so people kind of get to know you a little bit, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, sure. I was uh, born and raised in uh, Rowayton, Connecticut, which is a part of Norwalk, Connecticut, um, on the Long Island Sound, um, specifically the western part of Long Island Sound. And uh, grew up saltwater fishing, um, pretty young age. Um I also did some bass and pickerel fishing with my father, a um, little pond hopping in some of the local towns uh, north of where I grew up and, uh, you know, pretty much got into it at a very early age and with a lot of enthusiasm. Um, but where it predated that was my love for the natural world. I, at even an earlier age, I was watching nature documentaries and, um, Going outside all the time, drinking from the hose, flipping rocks, <laughs> coming home with the street lights turn on. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, all all the all the typical yeah, 80s yeah. stuff. So that's uh, it's where it started. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, Dave, do you have any questions? We kind of shoot. So like, I don't know. We shoot from the hip a lot of times mm -hmm. with the questions, so it's necessarily you're not going to get, like, uh, you know, an order of questions. We just kind of go along with it. Um, I, my question to you is, like, what brought you into, like, fishing with with a fly rod? or well, um, fly? I got a fly tying kit somewhere around the age between 10 and 12, 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there. And shortly after, got my first inexpensive fly rod. It was fiberglass. I had, I believe, a Martin automatic trigger style. Um, you hit the lever and the line recovers on the reel. And um, that was my first outfit. It was, I, I believe it was an eight foot seven weight. And um, in those years and certainly before then, shorter rods were kind of in vogue. Um, when fiberglass was around it's only when carbon fiber became normal you know to everybody that the longer lengths um, became more desirable because you had a lighter weight rod you could roll casts easier and when you had trees behind you you can mend easier you know where 
fly fishing originally started. But um, I wanted to use this in salt water, so I got myself a Fluger Metalist 1495 and a half. Put a nine weight line, or no, I think it was an eight weight line on there. And it loaded up, put a deceiver, and I started fly fishing in the salt water. So that's where, I, you know, right in my essentially backyard for striped bass. This is this is in the mid okay. to late eighties. Okay. Did you have any um, a mentor or anybody you looked up when you started fly fishing? Um, there was a specific store which I still work on. Uh, work there on and off. Um, the Complete Angler um, was a fly fishing is a fly fishing specific store, um, and Tom Schubot. Eric Peterson, Scott Losher, those three guys um, were my early people that I looked up to in terms of getting introduced to fly fishing. And um, I heard names like Lou Tabry, and then eventually he wrote his book, and Ed Mitchell, um, Paige Rogers later on, and uh, AJ Hand, um, Dave Skokes about my age, maybe a year or two older than me. And he was tying uh, tales of poppers for a defunct fly company now called, uh, which used to be called Mystic Bay Flies, which was a Connecticut based um, fly company. And so that's where Dave Skoke started tying. Um, so I was kind of in that era. There's John Posh, Stratford Bait and Tackle. Um, but at that time in the eighties, you know, it was not very common yet. Obviously, when the river ran through it, that movie showed it got everybody into it. You also had the combination of a an incredibly good economy in the 1990s, you know, plus the movie and a lot of room for innovation, um, more magazines, um, DVDs, well, VHS, VHS and eventually DVDs. Yep. Um, there was a, a room for records too, you know? So there's a room for a lot of things. The flats boat thing in the Northeast, Jeff Northrop brought that up here. He was a mentor for certain. Um, he was in Westport, Connecticut. Um, he was doing that, starting that in the late eighties. Um, so there was a lot of room then. Right. Yeah, there's still a lot of room now. Uh, I don't know it, about that. It seems that. like even with, eh, uh, there, there, there's a lot more you can still do that people, you know, just don't. Uh, I mean, you'll you'll see it probably in like 20 years. Um, people probably thought about it and tried it, but it just didn't work or didn't do it right. But it's it's, 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 it's I guess same thing happened once COVID hit with the whole fly fishing industry mm -hmm. because in the 90s when that movie came out became popular because it was all mm -hmm. over the TV and uh, it was in the movie theaters and things and then COVID hit and everybody <clears throat> promoted go outside and do things outside and a lot of people picked up fly fishing that never would have tried it you know they tried outdoor sports that they never would have tried before like kayaking canoeing and all that the hiking and all that stuff absolutely so, absolutely um, i de i definitely saw the numbers increase everything anything uh, associated with the outdoors uh, uh, exploded if you're not in that yeah, industry yeah. you were suffering if you're in the nightlife industry restaurants clubs um other 
yeah. things like that, um, you'd be really struggling. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Joe, you have any questions? Sure. What's up, Ian? Hello. I just just walked in from uh, fishing all day, so um, sorry no I'm problem. a little late. Uh, you talked talked about the whole boat industry. I know you're big into the into that, and you have a wealth of knowledge of running boats and all about the f knowledge, a lot of knowledge with the flats boats and engines and and stuff like that. You and I talked a few times about boats. I was highly interested in flats boats myself. On it, on the teeter totter, getting one, not getting one, but um, it seems it seems like you have an awesome boat now, and you you kept it and you you rebuilt it a few times, right? So, how was it running a flats boat, and what you do, and why did you pick that? Well, I fell in love with Lake and Bay boats going on vacations to Boca Grande, Florida, which is in Southwest Florida on Charlotte Harbor, um, below Sarasota, north of Fort Myers. It's one of the barrier islands um, from uh, just north of Sanibel and Captiva. And Phil O'Bannon was the guy who pretty much brought Lake and Bay boats to that area. And I um, had seen several of them in the water on the trailer. Um, this extremely low freeboard, high transom um, jack plate with a huge engine, sporty beak of a bow, sexy lines. I fell in love with the boat. I, you know, I, I'm a pretty intuitive person, and I just knew this was a great riding boat. It's going to be stable um, and just pure sex appeal. It's off the charts. Um, I was in the late 80s, and uh, I my grandmother had a book, The Fishing Guide, Rocky Russ. Um, I fished with him. Um, I fished. Uh, there's many derivatives of that hull over the years. In fact, there's upwards of nine companies that I've counted um, that have literally copied, splashed that hull into a different molds. Um, Big O is a sister ship of that boat. And I went with uh, Roger Crafton and um, I just love that boat. And when it came time to buy in the late nineties, when I bought mine, uh, we didn't have the money for the 20 footer, even then, you know, when prices are half of what they are now. Um, so they made a 17 footer and I, we got that and we placed an order on that. Had Gene, and Gene was making maybe 12 boats a year. Everyone took pretty much guides, um, built to last a lifetime. Um, if you look where you're not supposed to look, there's tabbed fiberglass up and around all the hatches, the live wells, the bilge area. Um, these are places that the average boater doesn't. They're just, they're ignorant. They don't know anything. But to the concerning, you know, discerning boater, you know, that really pays attention, these things are built incredibly well. And um, so we bought the 17 and uh, I wanted the 20, which is faster, uh, better ride when you get in that two to three foot chop. Um, and I've had it ever since, 24 years later. Um, now, that's not entirely by choice. Um, I'm not independently wealthy. Um, if I had the money, I would own a 24 foot bay boat because that is essentially 
a Leatherman tool. And there's a reason why bay boats exploded in popularity in the last 25 years. It's because they're very good at doing a lot of different things. Um, inshore, near shore, lakes, you can trailer them. They're very quick. Um, they're dry, lots of storage space, live well space. Uh, you have a, a center console, leaning post combination, but you put a bow trolling motor on there, jack plate, power pole, and it has all the attributes of a flats and bass boat, but also attributes of a traditional center console. So it's a blend of multiple genres of boats. Um, so. Now, now, if you like, since you're a big boat guy, uh, if a a new guy is possibly looking for for a good boat to start out with, uh, maybe just fishing like little back bays and um, you know, little brackish water, a uh, little tidal stuff. Uh, what boat would you possibly recommend to some of those? I recommend going to the gas station and playing the lottery. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but seriously. The best boats are always the small boats. Um, a tiller, six-gallon tank, pair of oars. Um, you start there. Eventually, you move on. And it's like a lot of things. You, you return back to where you started. Or at least I wish now, if I had the money, I would have a couple boats. And one of those boats would be, in fact, a tiller. Um, minimal, simplistic style boat. So you can get a used Lund. You know, 16-footer with a 25-horse tiller, a six-gallon tank, or a low, or some, you know, aluminum boat like that, Lumacraft. Um, you can get into some of the fiberglass boats, um, but they get extremely expensive once you get into technical boats um, that are vacuum-bag, resin-infused, as modern boats um, are often made these days. Even, even a used Lund... It's pretty pricey, but I see that, you know, if you go up north, up in the northeast, like Maine and New Hampshire, there's a, they're all, there's for sale everywhere. Yeah, of course. It, it, people uh, yeah. generally buy what they see. You go all over the country in different places, you know, they're Chevy fans. Or you, you go another part of the country, they're Ford fans, you know, or Dodge fans. You're just talking on trucks. You go in this area, and a lot of people love Grady Whites um, or regulators. Um, you know, like I said, they, they buy what they see. Um, so if you go in the north woods of Maine, you're probably going to see a lot of Lunds and, you know, Lumbacrafts. Okay. Sure. Ian, what's the shittiest weather you get caught out in with your, your boat? I don't know if I should publicly tell you that. <laughs> uh i've been in legitimate eight to ten foot waves in my boat wow i've been out when 26 28 foot regulators turn around you got to remember uh there's three sets of uh abilities the ability of the person driving the boat the capacity and ability of the boat and then the ability and capacity of the boat and uh person driving it combined as one unit more times than not the boat can outperform and be way more uh able than the person who owns it 
Absolutely. Same with rods. Same with rods. Yep. Now, when, when uh, so are you currently guiding? Are, are you taking on uh -huh. clients as of now? Or? Yeah. You are. Do you, you want you want to put out where you, they could get a hold of you in case uh, you know something. Yeah, know my email's or... good. Uh, Captain underscore Ian at Yahoo dot com. Okay. Yeah, well, after the show, if you don't mind, uh, just uh, um, hitting me with your contact info, so that way I could put it in the. I'll put it all in the description. Sure. If you got a phone number or the shop to get a hold yeah. of or whatever, just so that he, way they have it. And Ian has a. Uh, well, you have three Facebook pages, but uh, I think one in particular is for the guide yeah, business. Yeah, I do. I've got Captain Ian Devlin's charters, and then I've got Devlin Blinds, and then I have my personal page. Yeah, so if you could give me all that information, I'll put it right in the in the bios there, and that way everybody, whoever wants to get a hold of whatever they need to get a hold of, they can yep. just go right on there. And then an, an Instagram um, account, too. Yeah, now, uh, your Instagram is already in there, but since you were speaking of the blends, um, I'm going to kind of jump off the topic of uh talking about boats uh the blends are is that something fairly new you've been doing that for a while or you've been dabbling with it uh what, what's the well deal with that? i first started when i saw the fishing products cliff rochester's company in the late 90s and um you know at the slinky fiber mirror image and a couple other products and steve farrar collaborated with the company to make a flash fiber blend, <clears throat> which is a three to one ratio typically of angel hair to slinky fiber. And at that time when they came out, I was really intrigued about it because I was already using slinky fiber and angel hair separately. And the ratios sometimes were not like the way I wanted it. And the colors were not um, sometimes the way I wanted it, or they didn't have the, color combinations I was looking for. So I had to learn how to make it on my own. This is like 20 years ago. It, wow. Maybe a little more than that. Okay. And then okay. I had my friend Dave Skoke, who's a very good friend of mine. I saw him uh, taking the 12-inch cut of Slinky Fiber and blending it with his Mega Mushy Flash. And so it's basically a magnum-sized version of Steve Farrar blends. And he had seen my blends, you know, the Steve Farrar blends that I'd been blending custom and he's like you know i've seen your stuff they look great i'm like well you should sell this with your flash in there at that size you know and maybe talk to cliff rochester at fishing and have him mass produce and he's like why don't you do it it's like i can't be bothered you're going to be buying pounds of my flash anyway so that's how devlin blend started and my friend henry cowan um, who I've known for a long time, probably 30 years now. Um, he called, he's the one who named it Devlin Blends, and it was Devil N Blends. Um, and then I just eventually um, spelled it like my actual name. So Devlin Blends instead of Devil N Blends. But I had done many versions of blends. I blended Enrico Puglisi's EP fibers with angel hair. I blended uh, Bozo hair with uh, saltwater angel hair and some, you know, Mega Mushy, uh, Flashaboo also. I've done uh, mirror image, sculpting fibers, um, you know. So I've done a pretty wide range, including uh, Yak, um, which I really like on the big sizes. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm trying to find mine it's now. It's extremely hard to find it. That's for sure. Yeah, now and I got I got a I got a yak hair here. I just uh, I'm not, I was never a big fan of it. I don't know why. I just never liked it. Uh, so it's still in the same package. It's it's very just, coarse. It's in. very springy, and it's a thicker gauge fiber than slinky fiber. So it's, <laughs> it, it it turns out being a little stiffer. And I really think it comes into its own at the really really big stuff because the bigger the fly you don't want to go more and more supple you actually want to go stiffer and stiffer when you go smaller and smaller with the fly you want the fibers to become more pliable so when i'm tying little right. flies i'm using angel hair or i'm tying you know if i'm using flash or i'm using uh craft fur or polar fiber yep there you go um, I'm using marabou, obviously, ostrich, you know, very move, you know, materials that move a lot. But as I go right, up in right. size, I'm looking for bucktail. I'm looking for slinky fiber. I'm looking for coarser, stiffer materials. Yeah. Because the, the bigger flies, they'll just move differently yeah. than smaller flies. If you put that, I mean, I, I tied a fly with marabou. It was ginormous and it just had way too much movement and just didn't swim properly. It's going to absorb a lot of water, too. Yeah, uh, so it's just... Um, but that, that that's a good point that you put that, because there's a few uh, few listeners that we have here that are fairly new to tying, so that kind of something that we really haven't talked about. Well, here's today. an easy way to remember it. Appreciate the that. smaller the flies, the smaller gauge of the fibers. The thinner the fiber, the more flexible it is. The bigger the flies, the bigger the fibers, the thicker the gauge of the fiber as you go up. It's good to know. It's a good, uh, good little uh, uh, information. Yeah, good. Less is more, as they say. <laughs> sometimes, yeah. sometimes less is more. And Ian, you you tie custom flies as well. Yeah. So I see. I see. I've been doing that for a long time. Oh. I actually brought EP flies yeah. down to Southwest Florida around '94. So um, I been tying flies um for stores going back almost to the early 90s wow are you still production oh yeah now or yeah now it's more i mean i have my set patterns okay. that i do i'm not going to do anything at someone's request you know i kind of have a narrow parameter of what right, i'm right. going to make available gotcha 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 so, so like you literally still sell to like other shops besides the one that you work at. Uh, right now, I rather sell direct because I make more money. <laughs> okay. Okay. I hey, completely understand. I, I was in that same boat, so I completely so, understand. You know, I got to make a living. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm fortunate enough to have a full time job. So I, I have seven full time jobs that are micro jobs. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I don't have um, a full career. I, fishing is my career, and there's a lot of little facets. And I've been in so many um, parts of it over the years, the last 30 years. More, more than 30 years. Now, now Joe, Joe always mentions uh, his favorite fly rod that he never uses. Uh, I'm afraid to use them. He says it's the best fly rod on, What's on the that? market. Uh, Joe, Joe could tell you about it. 
Well, well, Ian, you know, I got the, I got the whole mm-hmm. fleet of the short stick. So, um, it took me about three years to, to, to assemble those from different, you know, uh, different, st- you know, uh, online stores and stuff, but I, I ended up getting the whole fleet and I think you had intimate designs into the what 10 11 well, the 11 12 specifically i asked to put the k-frame guides on there which i intuited that it would uh, channel and flow the line through the rod better at a smaller guide size um i had seen st croix had done that i think on their bank robber i think they were the first fly rod to put a k-frame on there the k-frame yeah. actually came from the surf casting side of the world and the reason for a K-frame is for the use of braided line and a crosswind. So when you use a spinning reel and you're casting a surf rod and you get a cross breeze, the line velocity hits that first guide so fast that you get a loop that goes beyond the guide. And when a crosswind happens, sometimes that loop goes over the guide and if the geometry of the shape um, of a traditional guide, it would lock up. So the K-frame, that braid, if that loop goes on over the guide, it's wider over the ring. Beyond, you know, so it's kind of like a a camber design. And that loop falls off. So if you look at a ballistic camera, I think maybe Fuji or one of the companies that makes a K-frame um, shows that. Um, I just kind of thought it would be interesting to try this with a fly rod not that you're having that kind of velocity or using braid um it also have a little uh curb appeal on the shelf something different and i think you could probably get away with a smaller size god reducing weight um you know sue app invented the fighting grip on fly rods and later said it was a mistake to put the cork uh further up on like a 11 or 12 weight 13 weight fly rod so I brought the fighting grip tight, um, closer down to the real seat. Um, not nothing, you know, there's uh, Sage has done that. Other companies have done that. Bolua has done that. So I just brought that there. Um, but the blank, the, the rod is, uh, the taper is the most important thing. Um, I don't care what company makes the rod, what country it's in, what price it's in, what color it is, what components are on there. The number one thing of what length it is, what number one thing with any rod is the taper. And when somebody complains about the rod not casting well, um, it's well, it's usually the person casting it, but actually it's really um, the taper of the rod. And most fly rods uh, are terrible transmitters of energy. So would you make a motion? You're trying to communicate that to the line. And the rod is simply a middleman, it's a translator of energy. Spinning rods and bay casters um, rods are typically a true fast taper and a much, much better translator of energy based on the, based on the taper. Okay. Yeah, some excellent points there, especially the guides. I know everybody will, you know, I guess it, at least some of the experienced guys have had that issue where the line gets wrapped around the guide and kind of knots up and gets stuck there. Yeah. You're not really going to see it on a fly rod. Um, 
but you can get performance at a smaller size. In other words, in saltwater, Lefty Cray was always a uh, proponent of putting a t size 20 or so large guide. You saw it on the Sage RPLXs yep. in the 80s. Um, you know, that was his guidance through um, to Jerry CM, who's the chief rod and engineer at Sage, and other companies followed suit. Um, but with that raked forward K-frame, you can actually get the performance at one size smaller, which reduces the weight a little bit. Yeah, so so I wanted to ask you about that, and you you, uh, you answered it because I was reading Lefty's, the latest edition of Lefty's book that just came out the other day, and a couple points that you just hit on is one is the size of the guides. So immediately I went down and measured the guides on, on the um, – Mm -hmm. on the uh, short sticks um so that was good because i was going to ask you about that and the other mm -hmm. thing is about the fighting grip so lefty says it's really not a fighting grip it totally it's just a resting, resting grip, grip. Totally yeah. yeah just you have rest the, you have the short stick with you joe uh i can it's in my garage go get it i want to see what it looks like okay i'll be back and george it seems like you popped off video Oh, so the heavier two models of the short sticks, the Loomis G Loomis short sticks, um, have the fighting grip. So the eleven twelve and the ten eleven. Um the nine ten, eight nine and seven eight just have a regular full wells grip. Now now we we had uh Rise Fly Fishing Co <laughs> on last week. We had, we had Steve come on. Uh, and we kinda of touched on fly rods. But like uh you said since like the bait casting and uh, you know just regular spinning rods, they they have a truer taper to casting and they cast better. Uh, why don't we put that into fly rods to make that happen as well? Some of us have. Some of us have. Okay. But I mean, like, it, it, so uh, if you go into the, I guess, I guess this is where the price comes in handy, right? Uh, and you'll probably say that's what it is. Uh, but like you have like the smaller companies like mm -hmm. Reddington and stuff like that that make uh, or bigger company that makes the cheaper fly rod more affordable for everybody. Um, I guess those cheaper rods are the ones that are with the worst taper on it. Uh, if I may be frank with you, I think the industry is completely backwards. Um, I believe when you're a beginner. Uh, when you're excitable easily and you want to rush the cast out there, you should have nearly a telephone pole to cast with. As you become better and you relax and you become patient with your casts, you can appreciate a moderate taper, traditional taper fly rod. Okay, that's the guide. Yep. That's the K guide. It's like the same exact thing as the bank robbery exactly. used to have. Exactly. Yeah, because I, I bought it just because yeah. of oh. Kelly Gallup. I have all I have the whole fleet fully assembled, and I made a custom rod rack in my garage that they're all oh, hanging nice. on. Let me see that. Let me see that <clears throat> handle, if you don't mind, Joe. Yeah. So this is the um. This is mm -hmm. the ten eleven. Yep, it's Here's integrated, very similar to Belua's design. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. As you can see, I actually got some uh, wood filler and filled mm -hmm. in all the little crevices. 
Yeah, good quirk is extremely hard to find these days. Yeah, yeah, um, we we touched on that last week too. It's yeah. coming harder and harder now to find find it more and more. I don't know if this is coming across correctly on so the upside down. regarding the tapers on the short sticks, the ten, the nine, ten, ten, eleven, eleven, twelve, all have the exact same taper. They have um, progressive power as you go up on each model. All right. So what I wanted was a stiffer tip. Uh, a lot of fly rods that are marketed as fast are almost extra fast. They have a stiff reserve power in the butt, and they very quickly um, get too flimsy in the tip. And the problem with that is is twofold. The average caster, which is a below average caster, uh, accelerates too soon, and the tip of the rod does not track a straight plane. It's it it uh, the tip of the rod with that flexible fast tip dips and that's what causes the closed loop. The other part of the problem with a extra fast tip is if you're casting weighted flies like clouds or minnows or half and halves or anything like that, the tip of the rod gets overwhelmed and uh, you can't really cast patterns like that. So you actually need a slower tip with more power more stiffness. Okay. Is that what they call the shock when you would cast those heavy-weighted flies where the rod tip would just the like shock? The problem with a and... Clouser Minnow, um, if you want it to cast, the problem is the fly is traveling faster than the fly line because the material you're using is bucktail, absorbed water, you've got a lead dumbbell sinker, you know, weight on there. And when you make the cast, the fly is like a dart and it travels, exceeds the speed of the fly line. And that's the buck you feel at the end of each false cast. So what do you do? Well, you do a Belgium cast or a constant tension cast. So you cast to the side and you finish your forward coming overhead. And that's a constant tension cast. So that's kind of an adaptation to a design flaw. Or you just go with less weight on the clouser the way Bob Clouser actually ties them. But when we fish for stripers, we generally like to fish a heavier than what Bob Clouser recommends dumbbell eyes. So they become more clumsy to cast. They're not weight balanced. So what do you do? You can switch the materials and go to synthetics. So it'll shed the water and introduce more wind resistance and slow the thing down. And it's the opposite of like big bunker flies and big sailfish flies, billfish flies. In the 80s or so, um, to cast big flies, people thought it was impossible. That was a tease and switch only scenario. You were never going to throw that thing 100 feet or more than that until Mark Zadati came in to do, you know, explain that you absolutely could. His best cast is 189 feet on a shooting head with a 12 inch fly. Mine is a little over 165 feet with the short sticks, both of us. And we can both cast over 130 feet with a normal fly line, you know. So it's you it, with the big flies, you introduce weight to add a little inertia and negate some of the wind resistance. 
And with the clouser, you're doing the direct opposite of that. You're introducing wind resistance to balance the weight. And um, instead of having to fly so streamlined when it's wet, it puffs up with the fibers that are synthetic and wavy um, that slow it down. Nice. Ian, do you have any of your, I saw over Instagram, you had a bunch of big clousers you tied with the synthetic. Uh, they're in the truck. I just did a farmer's us? market deal with my wife. I, as an experiment, I brought my, my flies I recently tied to sell there. How, how big do you tie? How big do I tie what? The flies. The oh, the clousers? I've got some of those pushing a foot. Uh, Bob Clouser has uh, his biggest yeah. one. He calls the Mega Clouser, which incorporates big fly fiber off the back and bucktail on top um, with not too big of a dumbbell lead eye. Um, but I tie with my blends um, and other materials. I've made them a foot long, you know. And still get the sink rate I'm looking for, the jigging action. Because really what you're looking for is you're with the a, a weighted fly is jigging action. It's it's a it's a jig. Yeah, it's a it's a fish, fish trigger for sure. Fish especially fish. bass. All bass around the world, they love that. Yep. yep the yeah. longest I've ever Oh you can go way beyond that. This is fine. Yeah. I, I got I just where, where I fished a bit, I don't really need well, to fish but... Yeah. I don't have I, I mean, here. I sell big flies. I make big flies. You know, the blends are kind of oriented around big flies. But my everyday pattern, you know, is four to six inches long. You know, I just, I'm filling in niches. And I'm, or if I'm using flies that big or that are big, you know, those are in search circumstances where there's big bait around. Okay. Yeah. Oh, you're fishing from a boat. Yes, but there are places for sure that I fish from shore where, like this time of the year, we have river herring that live in salt water and spawn in fresh water. They're, you know, anadromous. Um, they're going up into these tributaries to spawn, and hot on their heels are these 30 to 40 plus inch bass that you can catch in very tight quarters. We, we stopped getting that. It's nowhere near as good as it used to be. Um, you can do a day or night. Um, during the day, I'm, I'm, if I'm fishing, I'm also looking up. The warblers are showing up. The orioles are weaving their nests at night. You know, sometimes I'm <clears throat> trespass fishing <laughs> at times. And <laughs> oh, listen. But quickly. I know all about it. <laughs> um, but the moments, the windows where these herring often need to spawn, there's barriers. So the top of that incoming tide is a good time to fish because they can't quite get over that barrier. And as the tide's, you know, gradually coming up, those bass know that. And then they get their moment to go into a salt pond or a tributary or whatever they got to do to spawn. And then, then you got two-way traffic. You got those fish going up to spawn and then you have fish that are has spawned and are spent and are tired and are, they're sexed out. Those are easy meals on the outgoing tide. Yep. How are how are the? Do you guys get? A good oh yeah. Pads yeah. Or, uh, well, we got uh, grass right shrimp now. this month into next. Um, yeah. You yeah. got uh, a lot of grass shrimp. Yeah, they just started coming down yep. pretty heavy by me. The ultra so shrimp. I was yep. tying them up. Uh, 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was just, I was just fishing today, and Fritz got one on a dock spook, and it was spitting yep. up shrimp in the boat. Well, it goes to show you, you don't have to be perfect on your imitation. <laughs> but uh, yep. what was the biggest fish you ever caught? Uh, well, we're gonna get into the we're gonna get into the records. That was uh, one biggest, of my questions. The bull shark, probably. You know. Okay. Same here. On the flats, though, <laughs> you know, four feet of water, it's a oh. totally different game. Um, I didn't get to land at anything. It, it broke off. Uh, I was in Florida yeah. when I hooked in that. But that's not, you know, uh, tarpon is what I would kind of rate into my bigger fish. You know, it's half the size of the bull shark I caught. But, um, right. you know, I've caught tarpon and, and near, 100, you know, 180, 185 pounds. Nice. So that would probably be my biggest legitimate fish. That's not true. I I, I caught a bluefin tuna um, with Joe Leclerc that was 72 inches, and we calculated close to 200 pounds Ooh. on spinning tackle. Yeah. Okay. yeah Joe, Joe, Joe Leclerc is pretty big into that stuff. At least he was. I don't know. If I met is. Joe because his father booked a fishing trip with me in Boca Grande. And his father had a house in Boca Grande. And we hit it off right away. He was telling me he was just getting going with targeting bluefin tuna with the spinning tackle and fly gear um, out of Marion and traveling to Cape Cod and Cape Cod Bay and um, Stalewagon Bank, Outer Cape. And there, at that time, there was really nobody doing that. Nat Moody, First Light Anglers, um, Terry Nugent. Um, Jamie Boyle, Dave Skoke, um, my friend uh, Corey, our mutual friend Corey in Rhode Island. Um, we'd go up and try it. Um, my friend Nathaniel Linville, we grew up together in Rowayton here. Um, we fished with Joe and fly fished for tuna in uh, Cape Cod Bay and Outer Cape. Um, but that's going back, you know, quite a long time. You know, that's 20 years ago. Yeah. Yep, I had, I had a few outings at Stellwagen myself. Um, speaking speaking of back to the jiggy or the the weighted flies, the jiggies. Um, I actually have like a dozen of jiggies I tied just for tuna on on on, you know, tuna size hooks and stuff. Um, it's an excellent pattern. Yeah, so, it's extremely so durable. So that. what Bob Popovic yeah. um, did. Uh, this is a really good contribution for that kind of genre of fly is you have a fly that's um, if it hits the engine cowl or rock or something, it's not going to explode. You have a dumbbell eye, a traditional lead dumbbell eye, you know, that's going to break. When you have a cone head or the specialized jiggy head um, combined with the epoxy, it's extremely simple. Um, it's arguably, you know, when you tie it, it's faster to tie than a clouser. Sure, and it's it's and the the head's right up on the hook eye, so it's like a true. It's really diving. Those yeah, I don't think that pattern gets the respect that it deserves. That it it should deserve more respect. Absolutely sure. agree. We got a mm -hmm. question from the audience. Um, what's the fish you will love to catch? For the rest That's of a tough your life? question. That's like, what's the one song you want to hear for the rest of your life? Yep. You know, <laughs> we're human. You know, we're moody. 
we have our moments of appreciation. For me, as I get older, that's impossible because I appreciate so many different things. So I could never answer that. Yep. Joe, since you're on that same question, go ahead and ask your question. For sure. And and honestly, to, to back up what Johnny was asking, mine would be tarpon. I would fish for tarpon for the rest of my life. I'd have to say that tarpon is my favorite fish. And uh, I'll give you a couple reasons why. Yeah. Um, they obviously air breathe air, so they're going to indicate where they are. It's one of the most ancient fish of all fish species. It hasn't really evolved too much. And it lives in every single body of water, whether it's offshore, um, the beaches, inlets, flats, boat basins, canals, uh, coastal rivers, into lakes. They've been seen in Okeechobee. Um, their migration patterns are extremely impressive. Um, you can catch a six-inch tarpon to an eight-foot tarpon, and they're just always an amazing fish. And they eat flies. And they eat flies. You hook up really to a tarpon. Yeah, yeah. And and most of the time it's small flies. And and I don't know if there's anything on the planet when you hook up to a tarpon and stick it that is just absolutely Oddly chaos. Enough, my first big tarpon ever hooked like, with my friend Tom Schubert off Anna Maria Island. Um, never jumped. <laughs> Not once. Wow. It was an eighty-pound fish, and it never jumped once. So you get those occasional ones that don't jump. Yep. So with that said, what what is your and I we asked I asked this to all of our guests, and, and we got a lot of surprising answers. Um, and um, so, so I ask you this: What is your favorite fish to, to fly fish for? Well, I'm kind of a saltwater head. Um, although I've done a lot of freshwater fishing, um, my least amount of experiences with trout. I mean, I've done trout fishing with the fly. I enjoyed it. I've done it. Um, I did that in the nineties a little bit. Um, but striped bass, it's convenient. They live in all habitats day or night. Um, there's a reason why everybody goes for them. Generally speaking, they're pretty stupid. So you can catch them on a lot of different uh, tackle. Um, you can experiment and have fun with that. Um, I love big bluefish. I really have a soft spot for big bluefish. Um, I don't know. Albies, I was so fixated with small tuna in the 90s. Um, in the early 90s, it became a real trend. The late 80s, early 90s, um, catching bonito on fly from shore, especially, um, and eventually albies. You got to remember in the 80s and early 90s, it wasn't the albies. It wasn't the it wasn't false albacore. It was Atlantic bonito. In the last 20 years, albies and the um, promotion of that fish um, has been enormous. Um Tackle companies, uh, the reels even, rods, uh, seminars. You, know, you don't hear anybody promoting Atlantic Bonito anymore. 
Um, in fact, that's a fish that I really wish was studied more. Like they're tagging and doing the research on Albies. I really think they should be doing that with Benito. They should have regulations on Benito because it's an edible fish where false albacore, for the most part, people don't eat those. It's, it's purely a sport fish. In Florida, use them for bait for Jewfish, or I'm sorry, Goliath grouper. But, um, you know, it's, you know, or, or for marlin. You know, or, or, you know, you cut them in half for a bull shark. You know, it's, 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 it's kind of more or less a trash fish. You know, so I took advantage of that when I was in Florida. When the tarpon bite was off, I would take people out in the Gulf of Mexico and we go having a phenomenal time with really big albies and, you know, throwing big flies. They're eating threadfin herring, six, seven, eight inch long bait fish and, you know, throwing big streamer flies. I was talking about flies. I asked this question. If you could use one fly for the rest of your life, what would it be? A lot of rest of your life questions. If you just want to flat out catch fish, some sort of clouserish jig. You know, they put a jig and a survival kit for a reason. You know, Lefty Cray probably caught more fish species around the world on a clouser minnow than he did on his own pattern. Um, you know, there's a reason. That jigging action... Uh, I think a properly tied uh, lutebury snake fly is, is to this day a very underappreciated pattern. It's a derivative of uh, Eric Leiser Angus, it's, which is an offshoot of a muddler. You know, all these things are variations of a variations of a very, you know, there's hardly any pattern, very few that are revolutionary, completely revolutionary, you know. But Yep, they've all, all techniques were barred. Yeah, I just wish other... people would give credit where credit's due. That's that's a huge pet peeve of mine. Huge, especially now since social media. Yeah. Um, it seems like uh, there's too many people that say they invented this fly. They they came up with this fly. Like I think Joe said it. You said, uh, "Oh, they tied a popper." Yeah, I no, I, this no, it was, is yeah. popper. It was no, it was this. Like you, uh, Ian will probably notice, but you you remember yeah, it's Lefty's like a half, bug? Yeah, uh, like a half cork from a wine bottle. Yeah, and it and because I used to make those, and you used to cut yeah. the face so it was slanted. Yeah. All right, so this this guy, I'm not going to name names, but he's like created one. Yeah, it, it's easy to get sidetracked this way. But to answer it. your question, um, yeah. Uh, these days I, I like synthetic little bait fish, um, Popovic's 3d Enrico Puglisi's peanut butter, you know, a variation of that, you know, the EP peanut butter. I mean, those guys will get in an argument who invented what Northrop invented the Bozo bunker in the late eighties. Enrico did that in the late eighties, early nineties with his peanut butter. Bob Popovic's did his 3d somewhere around that. I'll let those guys play. Who did what when? I respect all three of them, and right. all three of them are actually my friends. So I, I don't want to cause any problems. What was your first ever fly you tied? <laughs> I remember it actually. <laughs> it was terrible. I was trying to make a cinderworm fly out of bucktail and black thread, and it was black rod wrapping thread on a cheap. Well, not cheap, but a typical uh, bronze turn down eye streamer hook. 
and I, I tied bucktail and I thought to taper the bucktail or the fly, you had to trim the rear end of it. So I put way too much red on there and I trimmed the rear end of it and I had this huge amount of thread on the front that was like a, a like a cylinder or a square ending. No taper of the thread whatsoever. It was horrific looking. Did no, I didn't even time? fish it because I was so horrified of what I made. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I kept it around kind of as a reminder of where I needed to go from there. Right. Usually the onion flies catch fish. Yeah. <laughs> I think my earliest, like, decent fly was the lefties this year because that is still going to be and always will be a bread and butter streamer anywhere, but for striped bass, bluefish, a, a thinner version for Albies and Benito, um, even fluke and, and uh, weak fish in our local waters. Um, you know, uh, lefties deceiver is, is a classic. It's easy to tie. I mean, that's, that's what I, sh that, back in the early nineties, that's all I used was the only uh, fly before I got in the synthetic bait fish thing was uh, when Lou Tabry and I met him and he came out with this book, Inshore Fly Fishing, his his uh, snake fly. Mother thing. You know, Eric Gleiser's Angus variation. And that fly in the water just has so much motion. It could just be statically there and just, you're not moving anything. To, it just, the current in the water, it just, it looks alive. Yeah. Yep. Well, it goes on that whole notion with the big, you know, bulky head that creates the exactly. You need something in blunt in the front to create a awesome. pressure wave, so that all the vortices going flowing rearward make the soft materials like marabou and ostrich uh, move. Didn't uh, Jack Garci had something like that yes. called the uh, general? Yeah, he did. Yeah, Master General. All, but the, you know, all those guys were kind of coming up with something similar. This, this is what happens with innovations and ideas. It's not uncommon for people to come up with similar ideas about the same time. It's if people are on the path of progress and they've seen what came before and they see what's going on now. It's not unusual. I have a, a good case in point. My good friend Johnny King has his kinky mother, right? Yep, my other very good friend Kevin Callahan, um, who doesn't want to be like on a podcast like this, and he's uh, frighteningly smart, intelligent, or intuitive. He's a hell of a hunter, bow hunter, fly fisherman, um, fly tire. He just he chooses not to be. He's not a guide. He just does this for fun, and he could be one of the best guides in the area, one of the better uh, tires on the show circuit. He just chooses not to. But, you know, years ago, I saw a fly complete angler before I saw Johnny King's kinky mother. And I saw this synthetic mother, you know, maybe seven inches long and a four-aught hook, blunt use, uh, head using slinky fiber trimmed and a conical head. And I thought, my God, this would be the ultimate... Uh, mullet in the Everglades for tarpon, 
you know, or something, a scenario like that. Um, and I'm like, who tied this? And this guy named Kevin Callahan. And it took years later until I finally met him. Mark Sadati, my friend, introduced me to Kevin. But Kevin and Johnny essentially did this exact same thing, and they have no idea who each other is. So that's that's just an example. Right. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, there's a guy at work, and he always says to me, if you thought about it, hundred other people already thought about it or yep. already tried to do it. Uh, and it, it's just how many. Well, that's just that it. There's know, been so much maybe. added to the body of knowledge by so right. many minds as, you know, stores, shows, magazines, TV, YouTube, you know, all the media platforms. Right. You, you make it look cool. You, it, it, it recruits people to the sport, which is good. And it has right. its negatives, too. The negatives aren't talked about as much because it's bad for business. But, um, you know, those are some of the facts, you know, that go along with it. I lost my train of thought. I was, was going to make a point with this. Um, do you know what I was talking about? I have these moments. It's all right. Uh, we were talking about, uh, like, people not knowing each well yeah okay yeah no i did so years ago in my opinion there was a hell of a lot more room for innovations ideas and there was less people in the sport the human population on the planet has grown a lot everything has grown marketing has grown the technologies have grown corporations have grown um and more ideas get into the body of knowledge which eventually turn into products and now in my opinion we're reaching a plateau there's been so many ideas you know uh and and everybody wants a piece of the pie you know especially the newer younger generation they want attention instant gratification short attention span you know a zero to hero in one month you know they're a pro in two months in three months, they got a promo code on their Instagram account, you know, selling something. You know, it's just, it's to me, it's a joke. It's it's just, you do this long enough, you, you see the progression of things. And I just think there's not a whole lot room left now for, for innovations and ideas without, you know, stepping on somebody's toes. Exactly. And also, I'll finish with saying I, anything I, old is new again if if you're young. Yep. So, but if you have integrity, um, you don't do that because you're you're basically BSing the innocent consumer for your own profit. Um, I think uh, I think a lot of uh, people now with social media and everything. Uh, it's all about your following. I don't think they even care about your quality. That's the dumbing down. That's if the dumbing down of society. Following. People are getting more shallow. They're getting more yeah. selfish, more sociopath. That's the byproduct of instant gratification in social media. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, the companies. There's there's a few companies out there, and their first question yeah. is how many followers do yep. you have. 
because we want to use you as our market. The companies are uh, laughing. The, it's easy to, to see. I product. mean, you can read the whole thing like a book. You know, the companies are laughing to the bank because they have all these people, the wannabes, to get attention. So they're advertising like crazy. They're not getting paid for this. So they're doing a paragraph of hashtags to get noticed. They're in a sea of competition, all trying to climb over each other to get noticed. So unless you got big tits and, you know, or whatever, you know, you see the sex sells strategy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. Or the big fish only thing, which drives me crazy. Because honestly, the big fish thing is an extremely efficient way of fishing. And I'll tell you why. There's less of them. Their windows of bite is very narrow. The presentation is relatively narrow. And the aggregations, uh, you know, you follow their migrations or their movements, you know, whatever arena you want to do, fresh or salt water. Um, So you're not fishing a ton of hours. You're going specific time, specific place. And these days, all you need to do for that is a friend request and get on somebody's tech circle. And then you're now an elite angler yep. in a month. And and you know what I call it? Bull-ish. Because here's the thing. The guys that have put in their time and have street credit, yep. um, and I can relate to this, get swept under the rug. Yep. And they're... Yep. Yeah. A lot of the old timers, a lot of the old timers that... Uh, fish on the jersey shore they get and the follow base are largely ignorant they're shallow they don't care they just see instant gratification they have a short attention span they see what they want to see and they support that zero to hero versus the person who's earned their stripes before technology made it so easy for everybody Uh, Yes, and speaking about big fish, I did want to bring it up in case people don't know. Uh, steelhead are moving up rivers out west to spawn, and uh, I did put something in my story. If you have anybody that's fishing reds, uh, you don't have to mention it to them uh, in, in the in the message. But uh, if you do want to, just don't fish reds. Uh, well, I don't think people know. I mean, let's start with this. Fishing, what is it? What are you dealing with? You're dealing with the natural world. When you bring it down to its raw basics, what are you dealing with? You're dealing with the natural world. The average fisherman does not understand the natural world. They understand instant gratification, bragging, now these days posting, um product selling marketing i mean is that why you're fishing that, yeah i mean it's it's like it's uh, the culture has lost its way i i don't mean to be a Debbie downer but i just i'm not a you know i don't sugarcoat things right yeah, which no, is no, I, I completely which agree. Is good, you know, people need to know. And I just, I just think that uh, there agree. needs to be a new generation of mentors t- 
to help um, give some guidance here because I see a lot of people have lost their way. I mean, we're, we're here to have fun, ultimately. I mean, that's why we do this. It's a fun engagement with the natural world. It's probably the best sentence I could give to describe fishing. Exactly. And in a fly fishing environment, we want other people to have fun, you know, and the whole social media thing um, playing out where the hero, the zero to hero in two days because they're on, you know, giant bass because mm -hmm. someone called them into it. And then you're like, let's go fishing tomorrow. Like, mm -hmm. oh, no, you know, they don't want to. Um, no one wants to share information, but little you know, little does everybody know that that person didn't stumble upon fish on that specific tide. Someone told them about it. What's happening with technology it. is it's removing the act of discovery. It's giving you a constant heads up before you even get there. Yep. And half the reason I like to fish is the act of discovery. Yep. Absolutely. It's it's like I remember a day on the uh, North Jetty in Island Beach State Park, and this was before social media. And you know, basically, you would have to call Betty and Nick's and ask them, "Look, is it too windy? Is how's the surf?" You know, and you know, you would you would drive an hour and a half to the beach, and you park the car, you get all ready, but you hear the sound like crashing mm -hmm. waves. Oh, that's a big wave. Big wave, like I don't know. This doesn't look. This doesn't seem too good. And then, but but then you hike down to the jetty and the tide subsides, and then yeah. all of a sudden there's fish everywhere. You know, you you find out just by doing. A huge thing is using all your senses at your maximum capacity. Your smell, your touch. You know, I'm not the first to say this. Larry Dahlberg is such my. He's my number one hero out of all the fishermen. Um, I have the most respect for Larry Dahlberg. Um, so if I paraphrase um, Larry, um, I will use some of things that you've said that I respect. And, um, you know, the what he says, use all your senses. And I think when you're relying on technology and heads up and all these things, you're, you're not engaged as much. Absolutely. The one thing that really bugs me is the beach cams now. I'm not a fan well, of beach cams. I think we can. I think we've touched base on a lot of truths. So let's maybe go somewhere else. Well, let's do that, and then and you know, because I wanted to bring this up. Um, you're a current world record holder, right? So, By default. I... <laughs> you know, bring us. Well, bring us back to that day. Yeah, I, I mean, were you actually pursuing? Well, no, no, not records record, at that but point. I was pursuing uh, big bluefish side fishing. Um, uh, a couple things I did right. bring to Connecticut was the use of a bow trolling motor on the bow and and fishing structure like a bass boat. I have seen boats using uh, stern trolling motors, but nobody using a bow like a bass boat. I was the first guide in Connecticut to trailer up and down the coast back in the 90s and when i used the trolling motor i had already known about the behavior of bluefish finning and digesting and sunning themselves <clears throat> excuse me and the trolling motor allowed me to deal with current if there was current or 
usually when you're side fishing for bluefish, there isn't any wind. Actually, no wind is the ideal. And so I could sneak up to these fish that were finning, and that's what I was doing. There was, uh, you know, I was fishing in the Norwalk Islands, and I had a popper on a 10-weight Scott STS at the time, a uh, 4N rapid retrievable floating line, uh, Bob's Banger that I had tied, Popovic's Bob's Banger, six-inch tracer wire. I had some, I think, Rio 20-pound tippet. I was not chasing a record. I just happened to have everything legit. Um, dumb luck. And what is the other even end better. of this is I still, even though I have it, you know, I, I still don't feel I deserve it. Because uh, Lori Vanderlaski, who's a guide with her husband and Martha's Vineyard, has an 18-pounder. And there is a men's and women's seg it's separation. Um, IGFA. Um, because people like Paige Rogers and Jody Pate, uh, Billy Pate's wife, Jody, who I know, um, Jody, and uh, I know Paige. And unfortunately, she passed away recently. I don't know if you know that. Um, they were strong for getting IGFA to have a women's category to recruit more women to the sport, which is a really good idea. And I'm, I'm, I'm all for that. And in some cases, um, like really, really, really big fish, black marlin or something like that, you know, I don't know. But, you know, if, in my opinion, it's, it's really whoever gets the bigger fish. So she's got an 18-pounder caught on an easy sparkle body squid pattern which my friend chris windrum designed um with his uh, sparkle craft um stuff and um you know it was 18 so hers was on 20 and she had the record on 20 pound tippet hers went to women's then men's 20 went vacant and so my fish beat a number of entrances and quite a few entrances to this day although i do know of two fish over 20 on fly uh, taken that just were never submitted. Um, so I, yeah, I hold a world record, you know, but it's, you know, I had my little moment of fame, I guess, but, you know, in my opinion, Lori should, she should have it. She's got a better fish. <laughs> uh, so with, with that being said, uh, if somebody is targeting, uh, or wants to start targeting a yeah. trophy fish, uh, or world record fish, how did they go about submitting things? Um, I, you know, I always see it like, uh, and you, you see articles, like today I saw an article that popped up on my phone and said, lady caught the biggest largemouth uh, in Ohio in a lake. Um, how, how did they Yeah, so basically you... what you need to do is you weigh the fish on two certified scales. Almost every seafood uh, market, I think by law has to have a certified scale. So one of my friends owns a seafood market in Rowayton, Um and I weighed the fish there and it was uh, a little over 17 pounds, like 17 and a half pounds. Then I weighed it on a second scale, okay. Fisherman's World in Norwalk, and they have a certified scale or it did at the time. And it was, I think, 16.85 or something like that. It lost some weight, you know, dehydration. Um, although I had the fish alive in my live well when I brought it home. In fact, just to touch base on catching that fish, I, as I told you, I was side fishing. There's a group of fish in three, four feet of water, fenning, digesting. And I had caught a, a few fish already, 
you know, up to 14, 15 pound, maybe almost 16. Then I caught that one. I almost released it. And then I remembered 20 pound was vacant. And I remembered I had just tied that tippet with 20. And it has to be 15 inches uh, minimum between the knots on tippet. It has to be no more than 12 inches in, uh, for including the knot for shock tippet or bite tippet, including wire. Um, so those are the rules for that. And it, and it, ha you know, it has to test a certain amount. So 20 can't over test. I think 22 pounds is what 10 kg tests out at. So if you get like Berkeley big game 20, which is notorious for breaking more, they might break at 23. So those, that's an example. Um, so when you're submitting a world record, okay. I already touched base on the two certified scales, um, length, girth. You, you need a witness, uh, sign witness photos. You do the entire leader and including two inches or so of the fly line. You coil that up, put it in an envelope. You get the IGFA form and the IGFA book. I was a member because I like to, you know, just read the records for my own enter entertainment. And um, you cross your fingers. <laughs> Hopefully nobody else. Well, as I said, a friend of mine pounds. already got a 21 pounder on night on one of the big flies um, in Central Connecticut. That, um, I think it was on 20 pound tip, but my biggest ever is about 21 pounds, and it was 40 and a half inches. I was 10 years old, 1986, on a live bunker from shore in Rowayton. In those years, we had a lot of big bluefish in the harbors chasing bunker schools, but for the person who's bent on going for world records you got two things against you uh one is the records keep going higher and higher they don't go lower and in some ecosystems and some fisheries um you're never going to see those fish of that size ever again um the other thing going against you is money um i have a friend i won't mention his name he has a tremendous amount of money and he can hire guides, um, the best in the world, as much as he wants. And if you want to pursue a record, you have to do that. I mean, I'm not talking about eight times. I'm talking 40, 50, 60 days a year, you know, at 1000 to maybe $1,500 a day. That's what the tarp, the tarp, <clears throat> or whatever. But I'm just saying, you, you know, it, it takes a tremendous amount of money. You know, booking the right guides, the right time of the year, the right place. You know, in some cases, the right place on the planet. Um, that's not for the average person. So the person who's doing that has an unfair advantage. Because I know plenty of people that are under the radar. They don't have money. You know, yeah. who can blow away yeah. these people that have money and they're not on podcasts. Yeah. yeah. Well, just the way the world goes, you know, uh, but I was just curious about that. You know, uh, you always see it on articles and stuff. Mm -hmm. so I was like, yeah, I wonder how. Yeah. So. 
That's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Um, you guys got any audience questions might be out there? You guys got any last uh, questions you guys want to ask? We're, uh, this 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 hour. I, I, I have time, so I don't know Quick. what your limit is, but I have time. Quick. So. so I don't know what your limit is. But Quick. Well, we'll do the after hours, but we usually try to keep it to about an hour and a half. Uh, I could do this for twelve hours here. straight. Uh, so. <laughs> Ian, I have a question just because my wife's interested into the whole bird watching thing. Do you offer some type of um, uh, combination trip that? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm bird watching. I'm very spontaneous. The Could only that thing be limited, done in one? Limiting me are my clients. Um, so if I ask, you know, what do you want to do? Um, these are our options. You know, I'm not really going to say no, generally speaking. So if they want to do a little birding, a little nice little relaxing deal on the islands, or we drive up to Rhode Island salt ponds um, and look for certain birds there and do some sight fishing or um, go over to Gull Island and look at the turn, the, the roseate turn colony over there and maybe see something rare by chance that uh, flew in there with the migration. Like we've had a bridal turn one year. It shouldn't have been anywhere near here. That's an example. Um, yeah. Cool. cool. Uh, oh, arguably more than a fisherman. Guy. Yeah, I, uh, I've seen some of your pictures of your birds. And it's not, I, I the migration. Look. Yeah, the migration maps and stuff. Uh, I love when you post duck pictures because I'm like I'm, I'm like obsessed. With <laughs> but most people don't birds. know the the uh, range uh, of my what, fishing. People know me with fly, but I I've done it all. I mean I've looked jigging, surf casting, yeah. trolling, bait casting, chunking, black fishing, black sea bass, fluking, porgies. I was a deckhand on party boats. Um, if I put a resume down for uh, kind of the, the naysayers of me, it, I would embarrass them. <laughs> They'd realize how ignorant they are about me. And I, I really kind of despise yeah. people that don't realize how much depth there is to me. Yeah, that's exactly the reason, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on. I mean, guys like yourself, Johnny Kelly, who the next level guys are going to pass the baton to the young. I'm all crowd, in favor you know, of the underground because I know what it's like to be overlooked. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's way too many talents out there that are way oh, yeah. there, uh, on a daily basis. And me me and Dave touched on it a couple of times. Um, and it just doesn't go with everything. It goes with music, the, knowledge of fishing, planes, yeah, um, it, yeah, experimental yeah. stuff. Absolutely. Experimental stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It just—it's uh, amazing. It's amazing how smart people can be. And well, you know what the impetus are. of that is curiosity and the willingness to fail. This generation doesn't want to fail, and they don't fail because they have a heads up on everything that we didn't have growing up. And so they're fearing failing and, you know, they don't have the supreme curiosity um, and willingness to fail in the act of discovery. 
It's funny that you just say that you say that, that willingness to fail or just to fail. I remember when I was coming out of boot camp, uh, they told me they said, if you don't fail once while you're in the service, then you have. In order to succeed, you have to first. You have and to. That's fail. the only way you're gonna get up. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, it's it's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> exactly what I'm going to do tomorrow. Fail at trying to catch a striped bass on the Atlantic City jetty, which I have. I'm like oh for like 24 oh, wow. right now. It's just I I'm so driven to catch a damn fish on so, the fly. So so what on are the jetty. hiccups? It's... So so what are the hiccups? Well, some of the hiccups is you got a lot of bait guys that are and, right. and a lot of bait guys um drifting eels so. I'm ordering a bunch of stuff to tie like 12 inch eels, you maybe like a game changer eel or something, to yeah, to 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 maybe, maybe dredge a, a line. But I mean, well, yeah, big black flat wing. You know, maybe with the with the palm or a uh, a brush up front do. to create that that bald head, and then trim that. Yeah, it's a unique fishery there. They got um. There's like eight jetties, right? And um, there's really like three that you can fly fish from because some of them are way too high and too treacherous to try to land a fish. But so, you know, I'm isolated to a few jetties and specifically two of them. But I'm going to be there tomorrow. Um, Give it a shot. All right, again, yeah. You got a uh, stripping basket? Some, uh, flat wings. I, I, um, I got some. You know, course, there's two yeah. kinds of baskets that um, Bob Popwix has taught. It's a one where you're wading deep. You don't have holes in it that drains, so the line's in there. And then when you're on the jetty, you've got one that has holes on it, so it drains. So when you take waves, it drains out. And I, yep, yep, I got I got two. Yeah. Um, if nobody's gonna ask any questions, we're just gonna go to the after hours. I know that we had a few people in. Uh, we actually had a lot of people in, uh, but they. I probably got too serious. Drop it off a little bit. It's getting late. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, I, don't, I don't think it's that. It's the late hours. We oh, get a lot late of hours. after uh, listening. Um, I, I, I'm I'm exhausted too. Okay. Normally I'm in bed a half hour ago too. <laughs> uh, but normally gotcha. tomorrow I don't work. But tomorrow I got to work, and I would after the show I would be going fishing, but. <laughs> I'm not going fishing because I got to work. So, uh, the send the water where, started. Uh, where are you located? Mm. Uh, so that was. Oh, New Jersey, okay. Times River, New Jersey. And you, just where where are you? Yeah. Yeah. You're... So I... I'm in okay, southern so New Jersey, near Atlantic separated City. Separated a little bit. A little bit, but I I grew up fishing. Well, since the '90s, Island yeah. Beach State Park. That's where I first so... met Bob. When does the worm the hatch spot begin to be. in New Jersey? Generally speaking, most years. Uh, so it's gonna be usually the first week of May. It really. So you you have an early one. Moon, Connecticut, so, but... Western Sound. Oddly enough, it has to get pretty darn hot. So it's usually June into July. Um, yeah. Our worm hatches. Well, I mean, it doesn't get really hot. You know. It, it, they start drifting down, and you'll get the shrimp in between with them, and then you get the crabs, and the, they'll pick on which one. They'll literally, where I fish, yeah. they sit in the current. 
Now, are you getting the uh, baby calico crab hatch, the little dog tick sized crabs? They do. They do come through. Right. Um, That's usually. Yeah, we get that like early Uh, July is when it starts. Yeah, Um, reliably. Yeah. How's that been in recent years for you guys? um, But. Yeah. I don't really fish it. I don't really fish it because they're mostly on. Uh, uh, they're gonna be on shrimp, yeah. And they're gonna be heavy on the sin. I mean, when I get into worm hatch and it's on, <laughs> you, I've you seen can't that. See the water. Yeah. You, you, you That's where I put a big it, snake fly. Something that pushes uh, water, and uh, does not look whatsoever like a sandworm or you know a uh, uh, cinderworm. Right. And. You know, big yeah, yellow or big um, black snake fly, um, something that just because actually, if you pay attention to those worm swarms, uh, there's other fish in there. Um, porgies eat them, I've seen them come up and eat them. I've uh, later in the summer, I've seen uh, baby bluefish snappers eat them. So you'll hear the slurping, you know, yep. rising of the bass, and then every now and then you hear a crash, and that's either one of two things. Yep. Either Two fish bump their heads against each other while they're drunk on the worms, and they spook each other, which happens. Which happens, <laughs> or yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. or like they're a crashing a, a porgy or a, a, a snapper. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That happens a lot. You'll hear it out of nowhere where I fish, and it's super quiet. Like, I like to go late yeah. at night because there's no boat traffic, and when you hear that sound going off, you're like, okay, something's coming. And then you just look at it, and if the moon's right and you got the lighting correct, you could see yep. it literally just. I, I had that once at Martha's Vineyard at Menemsha Inlet. We, me and my buddy Chris, we, we, we left the house and parked, and we started walking, and we're hearing all these crashes, splashes. And I'm like, as we get closer, I'm like, that whole effing inlet is just covered in bass. Yeah, like it was amazing. Gurglers like three o'clock in the morning. Too, a small one. Um, one of my favorites. I forgot where I even saw it, but it's just real basic. It's you put a black cylinder. I don't know what the, you know, size, but very small, um, quarter inch long, and you thread it on the hook shank. You bring it up to the top, and then you just tie on a piece of zonker, rusty red. The whole thing maybe is an inch and a half, two inches. And a small lightweight hook, but not too lightweight of a gauge. So when you hook a bigger fish, it straightens out. But you want that foam enough that it creates a wake on a swing. So I like to fish choke points where you have an uh, an exodus of a salt marsh, usually by a boat basin and artificial light sometimes. And you'll swing, you'll cast up current, and you'll swing the fly under tension. You're not street, you're not retrieving. You're just keeping tension, and you'll essentially skate. Yeah. You know, wake the worm fly almost like you would. What's that Atlantic salmon fly? The bomber or whatever. You know. Yeah. Yeah, the bomber. Yep, that's what I do. Well, that's <laughs> you gave away my sense. secret. Because, <laughs> well, nobody by us fishes like that everybody by me and everybody that fishes with me the guys that have been doing it for years no. they always strip strip, strip the more current there is the, swing it. the and they're like more you want to do nothing yeah 
Yeah, I, I just swing it because, I mean, even with the material, with, like, the cinder worm, the way I tie it, it almost looks like a woolly bugger. Yeah. Um, there's just so much yeah. movement to it. it they just go, Sorry, I didn't, I didn't um, mean to give away your secret. I, I That's the, true. <laughs> uh, no, it doesn't matter. It's not a secret. Oh, it's not a secret. But it's just, they don't ever, like, they're, like, looking at me like, dude, you're, you're, why are you so lazy? Just start stripping. I'm like... Well, it's like lure fishing and rivers where they're striped bass. Uh, you know, the slow fall, yep. and then once it gets yeah. down there, more times than not, especially at night if you're targeting the bigger fish, as you're drifting on a boat especially, um, you're chunk fishing with rubber. You, you literally put the jig head and soft plastic down there, and if you do something, they often won't react to it. You just let it sit there, and you just feel that thump. Um you know this in the places where you have current. Yeah, that's what we do in the fall too. Yep, jigging the the, the soft plastics. But it seems true even for Albies and Benito. If you're in a breachway situation, um, you got a bunny rabbit, uh, you know, Benito bunny or a small flat wing. Um, swing it. Purposely yep. put a little it. bit of a belly in their line, yep. and this is where a longer rod's nice. Like. I really wish, and I I may be involved eventually, hopefully, with a longer, uh, what I call beach and breachway rod. So the market used to have 10 foot nine weights, 10 foot 10 weights. Sage used to have an RPL plus. Uh, Loomis had an IMX and a GLX. And the perfect rod for single hand casting, um, obviously not two handed, where single hand casting is like a 10 by 10 or 10 by nine. And that extra length, when you're high up on your perch on your jetty, you can cast up current, put a little mend in it. And, you know, the rod tip is closer to the water. There's less slack. Um, it's just easier to deal with. And pick up and recast and redirect the cast um, is definitely the way to go. Yeah. Um. I'm not going to, I don't mean to cut you off for nothing. I'm going to end the live. So if you guys have any questions, uh, feel free to hit me up or I don't know. Are you okay? Yeah, that's totally fine. A DM yeah. on Instagram and asking. Um, I really appreciate you coming on, sharing your knowledge and everything. Uh, if you guys want to hear the rest of this, uh, you're more than welcome to come and check it out mm -hmm. on the podcast platform, uh, Apple podcast or Spotify. Uh, with our upload speeds tonight, we should be able to be available sometime tomorrow afternoon. Uh, so if you guys want to check it out, check it out on there. And I uh, appreciate you guys. I, Thank you for coming in. You guys have a good night. I really appreciate and the invitation. We'll see you guys in two being weeks. here. Oh, yeah, no problem. Thank you. Yeah. Yep. Thank you. Got viewers yeah. also. All right, and oh, okay. we are in the after show. Go ahead. After show. So, George, I yeah. stumbled upon a secret of a salt <laughs> pond. I saw it. <laughs> you saw it. Tech, tech, saw tech, technology. No, no, no. That, that's my bowfin spot. Uh, uh, that's my bowfin spot. So I, I got a fixation of catching bowfin on that the fly. That is a very good cool. oh, nice. South Jersey. Yep. It is, it is. I started fishing for snakeheads last year. I'm not a huge fan of them, but honestly, the snakehead and the bowfin share a lot of same qual yeah. similar qualities. What's cool is the bowfin roll. Almost identical. You know, but, they um, breathe air. 
Yeah. I have yep. not. I've yet Snake to fish for those too. guys. My friend Alberto yeah. Nee fishes for them all the time. He's obsessed with those. They're things. nasty. Yeah, I mean they're they're good for for striking, like top. Well, they just sound stuff, but they don't extremely like predatory and vicious. Like, oh yeah, yeah. When they when they attack a, uh, a like a it, it sounds very much like a fly yeah. on top or something. It's... Yeah, yeah. Joe knows all about it. Blow up. Oh uh, yeah. So so I got a couple bowfin spots, but no no bowfin. Um, I was talking. Yeah, I was talking to, to Bob, and, um, and you know, I fish Island Beach so much. Like, I would have never thought of this, but if and I'll show you. But there's a salt pond where on a full moon, like tonight, or a new moon, water breaches and fills into the salt pond. And uh, perfect time for a new moon or a full moon to, to hit that. But the problem is it's a, like a mile and a half hike in the dark at wow. night. So not a lot of people want to do that, so... Hike it. Yeah, well, you know, you got to go with a buddy. You ain't going by yourself. Got a headlamp. Let's go. Yeah. We'll have to. I I might go tomorrow just to check it out. You ever notice how beautiful a bowfin is when they're in their spawning colors? Their tails are the green. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah. I've never seen a bowfin. I don't even know what What? a bowfin looks like. Oh, my God. How do you not know what a bowfin is? It's the most prehistoric fish in the the United States. (laughs) I'm not from it's, the United States. It's like States. part coelacanth, <laughs> oh, part God. gar. <laughs> you know what? Do, do you know what coelacanth is? They're they're vicious. It's like no. some say the some origins kind of... of the human crawling out of the water onto land. But it's it's an ex- exceptionally uh, um, ancient fish species. Yeah. Fish. And it's so awesome. It's just, you know, they're vicious. Oh, they look exactly like snakeheads. No, it's the other way around. The snakehead, oh. the, the bowfin's been around since dinosaurs. They're in Champlain. Yeah, they you know, they're in exactly different parts the of the northeast. They're certainly more common as you go south. Yeah, we got tons in Florida. Are yeah. they really? Oh, yeah. Oh, they're gorgeous. Wow. And if they show you a colors. picture when they're in their spawning colors, they're, they're oh. like that bright green on the, on the tail. Yeah, yeah, that's what I saw. Yeah. So it's funny because I, I've been trying to find bowfin spots in the deep swamps of oh, South Jersey, and I posted a picture, right? It wasn't you, – you really can't – you don't yeah. know where it is because it's a picture of a pond, a little stream with trees. But, dude, I, I must have got hit up 20 times on Instagram. Dude, where's that at? I want to catch a bowfin on the fly. Take me there. Oh, yeah. You guys won't be able to see it, but see how green they are? Yeah, they're spawning colors. It's a cool fish. It's sick. By the way, don't get bit by one of those things. Well, look inside their mouth. No, what happens? Toxins? Oh, they got some serious teeth Well, I know they got crazy teeth. But I wonder if they have some kind of weird... Ancient toxins that you can get yeah. like, kind got, of reaction. They got to green tongue, yeah. huh? I got my I got a both in uh, jo- uh on my profile. Yeah, yeah, my, yeah. I posted Wait, on my profile. You caught one on yeah. the fly? When I went up to Watertown. Hold on, we got some three people here? I only see two. We got three people here? I see George and I see Joseph. Who do you see? 
Dave, where are you? Yeah, Dave's uh, Dave's down low. Oh, I hear you. I'm here. I, you're the, you, uh, I hear you probably the clearest of the three. Yes. Oh. <laughs> and he, he's got no microphone and no headset. No, my microphone is uh, it's right in front of me. Okay. And he just didn't wear his headset. No, I no, I did. I had it on. Yeah, I just yeah. took. You just took it off for that. Yeah, show. I just took it off. I can hear you guys clearing. Uh, it's gonna come back in the feed. Though, so if you so have, my if friend Rowan is off. targeting Bofin in Connecticut, and he's got a great fishery on the uh, yeah. Connecticut River flooded uh, tributaries and stuff. Yeah, that's cool, man. Yeah, they, well, those things can they live actually caught mudfish. Yep. Mm-hmm. They get big. No, they do, man. They get really big. For, I wow. tell you, if, you know, now you got me juice. Now you got me. Now I should go tomorrow. Actually, you know what they look like? They look there. like what uh, Larry Dahlberg fishes for in, in recent years. Those giant wolf fish in Suriname, next to uh, French Guiana. If you look up, if you, yeah, yeah, they do. They've got they that do. same they tail, body shape, uh, crazy, crazy head. Yep. Those yep. teeth, those yep. teeth, holy shit! I like Ooh. the, I like yep. the little spot on the tail. On the tail, it looks like a freaking yeah. uh, dude. This thing is sick looking. <laughs> yeah, and I, and, wow. and there's like I, I live like literally 15 minutes from a couple of nice little creeks that come off the Delaware River. You need to hit them. You need to hit them, Joe. I know, I know. There's I, so I, so much to do, so yeah. little time. So I'm I'm assuming they're like I guess bottom feeders mostly. Like yeah, they, they no they the are bottom of the creek they, or river these things or eat everything. Yeah, and anything, I, think, right? I think they're an opportunity. They eat everything. They're apex predators. Okay. So so Ian, how I found the one one of the bowfin spots is I did my I did my homework. Mm-hmm. So I saw a, a YouTube video right of a guy fishing. Um, and like 90 people were like, where are you fishing? I want I want your GPS coordinates. And I didn't ask anything, but I noticed that he's in South Jersey where I live. And I noticed that he was fishing a, in a kayak near a bridge, and the bridge had a number on it. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to call every damn county. And with this bridge number, and it literally took me like hours, and I found out where it was. And I just went there yesterday. Nice. Check it out for the first time. Um, nice. Yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. What? Hey, hey, Ian, I got a question to ask you, and this is something that has plagued me forever. What's the deal with a bright full moon and and striped bass? Like it seems like, and it seems like mm-hmm. when there's a full bright full moon out with no clouds, like the bass don't want to bite flies. Like is that is that just something they've had enough light that you've noticed looking or... for darkness at some point because <laughs> it was it was daylight earlier in the day because I tell you I'm telling you man there's so many times that I went yeah, out that's and right. full I moon white and caught zilch so unbelievable I yeah. what I like to do is I'll because uh, you like to fish docks Joe. So when I fish dot when I fish where I fish, yeah. I'll fish all the like the super dark spots. Like right oh, along yeah, I mean, like bulkheads, 
and, and that way. I am just mean it, like in the yeah. surf too. Like there's many times I'm walking the beach in June on a full moon bright and we're not catching anything and it's a dead calm. This is as I've trivial as this might seem. You know what color are you using? Bright full moon. I mean, I would switch, but you're right. White flies with a bright full moon That's is probably my confidence. the best color to use. And then when it's, when it's yes, dark but out, not always. Oddly enough, white works literally everywhere. Dirty water, clear water, daytime, nighttime, bright moon, dark moon. Um, if I were to have one color, um, white is almost arguably my favorite. Wait. Do you know Captain Why Billy Hayes? really familiar. Well, he was he, he back in yes, he, him yes, and Jake yes, Jordan. Yes. They used to do these yes. trips with yeah, Dan Blair. Yes. So he used to, yeah, he used to, right? Yeah. He used to he owned English Pro Shop in Pennsylvania, yeah. and he would rent a house on the vineyard for months. Anyway, my first trip to the vineyard, I'm like, "What flies should we bring?" He goes, "Bring all the flies you want, as you long go. as it's four to five inches in white." That was his thing. <laughs> no. I mean, when I when I tie it to Marlboro show, when I, I fished like with Chris Windrum in Edgartown, um, when I first went to the vineyard, um, 1996, my friend Nick Gagliardi and Sherry Gagliardi, um, you know, I went to Larry's and went to the uh, Coops and Porkies and did the whole routine, and yeah. I met Chris Windrum yep. who just began his uh, online saltwaterflies.com which was at the time arguably one of the very first online uh shops you know really for fly tying flies even overall you know besides obviously like bass pro shops or something like that but um he was certainly early on but he was a guide and he started guiding there from shore and he had a canoe and one of the flies well, actually, I should say one of the uh, products. Well, actually, the product he was selling at the time was a product called Easy Shape uh, Sparkle Body. Kind of a long name for a tube of uh, sparkle craft glue you can buy at Michael's. So he basically sourced that somewhere and put his label on it. And um, it's great for making worm bodies and squid and sand eels, especially. There you go. That's it. And so he made a <laughs> easy shape sparkle body sand you. So he, he had his product. This is what you do in your branding. You know, he had his easy, easy shape sparkle body. And then he had his series of flies. And I, to this day, believe he's one of the most overlooked fly tire out there. He's like Johnny King as in terms of versatility. He can tie trichos to billfish flies to exquisite deceivers squid flies i mean he deer hair um he's incredibly gifted tire and um very ocd i mean you look at his fly box and it's like a museum piece and um so anyway the he's made this easy shaped sparkle body sand eel and it was white with the pearl and we fish under the moonlight at Edgartown Lighthouse on the beach there, and we were just slaying fish with that thing. Wow. 
Yeah, I had I had many good nights on Lobsterville Beach. And then I that place discovered Dipscoke's uh, Mushmouth because he just came out with it. And I picked up a white pearl one, and I fished right. the ferry terminal at Oak Bluffs. And I was just annihilating that thing. And I, I instantly fell in love with that pattern. And I even more fell in love with the pattern once I learned how to tie it because it's so ridiculously easy to make. And it doesn't foul. And you can use uh, different materials with that. But that pearl white under the lights there was just yep. lethal. <laughs> I guess, Joe, you guys fished Manasquan today? We did. We, we It didn't start off well. It started off with, I'd never seen Fritz get so mad. Oh. But we, so you would think the marina we went into, right? So I, I, it's in the back of the Manasquan, so the boat ramp at low tide, it was, wasn't was the perfect timing, but not only was it low tide, it's a full moon tonight. So we tried to get out there with little water, and we got stuck for two hours on what? the mud. Yeah, wow. so so then Fritz's... Where'd you, where'd you launch out of? Point Pleasant? No, Lightning Jack's Marina. There's oh, only okay. two public yeah. boat ramps on that whole river. Well, you could have launched out of, uh, what's it called, Point Pleasant. Yeah, you could have launched there, but it's it's it, it would have been right where by we, that train bridge where you guys where you got where he caught the hitchhiker. Right, but where where we launched from was it's just easy access off off the highway. So anyway, we finally the water started rushing in like it was crazy. It's like we sat there for two hours and then all of a sudden, and like after the two hours was over, like within twenty minutes there was, you know, two feet of water. Current was ripping in. So yeah, we took off and. Uh, we were on the hunt for big bluefish. Of course, they were there for like three days in a row, and they weren't there today on the incoming. So let me ask yeah, you guys a question. They're on the um, move. They left. I just on a chart. Barnegat Bay looks really fishy. <laughs> I mean, it. It. I gotta imagine it's a great place it to does. wade with poppers. Oh yeah. So behind Island Beach, you have uh, a fifteen and a twenty one. Um, yeah, they were getting big blues there. Probably today. could side fish there. Is Actually, that water clear? Back should have went there. You can, you can yeah. on a flat so boat. You can get back clear. there and side fish. You got the uh, sandy bottom, most of it. Yeah, it's pretty clean. Okay. Uh, some some of it's sand, so a, a lot of mixed. it's mud. Um, yeah, it's mixed. It's like a fifty-fifty. I mean, if you is out front boat, clear. Yeah, on the beach. Yeah. Yeah, out front. Yeah. So Bob. So in the summertime, Bob I used to do sight fishing using crab patterns. Too. That's what I do. <laughs> yep. I I did I do it for fluke. I do it for uh, um, the fuck was I catching? I can't remember now. Now I put myself on the spot. Fluke stripers. Once they start getting on the same cool. fleece, that's cool. They'll be like right on, on the beach. No, we were talking. Yeah, we we were talking to Bob because my buddy Manny, who uses a two-handed rod, is infatuated with catching bass in the summer in the, in the morning on crabs. But his his fly line, he says he does his fly wow. line is not even in the water. It's like it's on the sand. Yeah, it, wow. only his only his leader is in a the trough. They're not even in the trough. They're like, literally on, on right the on the wash of yeah. the beach. Like, yeah, literally like in the wash. 
Wow. Yeah, yeah, so like, wow. They'll beach themselves a lot of times to dig. Yeah. 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 Like tank, you'll see like the rubs all yep. jacked up and yeah. Like wow. Yep. Yep. Just like you see with that's the pretty cool. fish and carp and yeah. That's pretty cool. Uh, I do. do. Are you, you know, fishing there's, there's there certainly the, um, places where I do it in your um, waterway. It's not something that I spend a tremendous amount of time doing. Two reasons: the consistency and who's on the bow of my boat. You know, you need to be relatively competent caster, yeah. which 90% of my people are not. You know, you got to remember this, too. I'm not in a destination place, but I have destination caliber clients all around me. So they're not going to book an ideal moon phase or whatever. You know, they're not going to take a destination in their backyard. They're already, you know, live there. And we make the best of right. it. So my bookings are like, hey, and I could be doing an interview at 11, 18 p.m. right now. And like, hey, uh, I know it's short notice, but can you take me fishing? To my son and I fishing tomorrow morning. You know, so yeah. they have yeah, small, you have a lot of out. business people where I live and they have uh, sudden windows of time uh, with their family opening or you know they get out of work or they don't have to get to work um until a little later um as i said it's not a destination place although there are some guides here that book in advance but i think they're just kind of not telling the truth completely and they're they need deposits to carry them through winter and they're maybe filling some dates but i don't think as much as they portray you know, it's as a marketing ploy. You know, I keep it sincere. Yeah, I think awesome. a lot of those guides uh, in certain spots. Yeah, but I'm not buying it. And this is the only dates I have available. Yeah, but I'm not buying it. I don't think so either because uh, I contacted one of them and he's like, oh, yeah, I have that date available. I said, "Oh, you it, do? You just said you didn't a couple days." The ago. only, the only guides that I see that are like that are the musky guys. Like I, I see them both. That's only like, it's, for an entire It's amazing season. how you watch that trend. I watched, you know, we watched that trend happen. Uh, Brad, yeah, I mean, unfold. You know, Brad right, Bowen right. spearheaded that to a, a large degree, and then you know, plain chocolate, obviously, and now Chris Willen, who's now becoming buddies with Larry Dahlberg. Um, you've got two movements of the muskie. You've got the yeah. Midwest, and you have the—I uh, don't know what you would call that—south, southeast, you know, South, Tennessee, southeast, I guess. Kentucky, Tennessee, um, North Carolina, yeah, Virginia, right. And you—it's managed. They're all stocked fish. You had a couple things. You had the combination yep. of management. You had. Um, a rising interest of musky fishing with bay casting tackle lures. Yep. You know, you went beyond yep. big spinners and big spooks yep. and big suics and big glide baits. You know, you had a shops like uh, the musky shop, an enormous musky specific store. Um, you had uh, Bob Popovic's Beast Fly and influence musky flies. At that time, Blaine Chocolate's Game Changer, yep. Game Changer slash Beast, these hybrid patterns, marketing, um, 
a trend. It's pretty much a, a whole manufactured Correct. fishery. Pretty much. Yeah. 